Uh, If you're able, please stand with us this morning as we read from God's Word. The passage this morning is Psalm 16, which can be found on page 453 of the Pew Bible. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Travis, for reading. Thank you, Lena, for sharing your story. Please pray with me as we look together at God's Word. Gracious Father, what incredible hope we have in Christ. Lord, may we feel our need for that hope this morning. And may we see the answer of that hope in Jesus' face. Give us ears to hear your voice as we open your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So what does Easter have to do with today? This ancient holiday that's been celebrated for generations and and really millennia. What does Easter have to do with today? Is this simply a, a good excuse to get the family together, put them in pretty clothes, take some good pictures... Uh, put them on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, have a, have a nice meal together, enjoy the beginning of spring, which finally seems to have arrived in New England. Praise the Lord. Is this uh, an important religious activity? You know, a good way of staying connected with God, celebrating Easter. Is this just a holiday tradition or... Is there something more to why we're gathered this morning? What if Easter actually addresses one of our deepest fears and most fundamental human problems? Namely, the fact that this world is given to decay and we, as part of this world, are likewise given to decay. What if Easter has something to say about that? Uh, that this is a fundamental human problem is an indisputable fact. Our world is given to decay. We see that everywhere around us. I feel that every time I wake up in the morning. My body is not as limber as it used to be, and somehow I've now reached a point in life where I can actually become injured simply by sleeping. (laughs) I don't know how that happened, but it's there. 
My children regularly update me on the, in, the growing population of gray hairs on my chin. It's a sport for them. In fact, they're disputing right now. No, they're white. They're not gray, Dad. Those are white. Getting old is not nearly as much fun as you thought it would be. Now, of course, some of you young people are thinking, I can't wait to grow up. You know, all of the freedom, that's going to be so wonderful. And, and that is great. That is, that is fine. That is a, a wonderful place to be. Enjoy that desire to grow up. Because someday it will happen. You'll hit 18 or 21 or 25 or whatever, and you'll, you'll decide, I have arrived, this is it. And then you will spend the rest of your life trying to hold on to that youth that you finally achieved as if to thwart the decay process. You'll be 35 years old and still trying to sneak into Forever 21 to do your, your shopping, hoping they don't ask for your ID or something like that. You haven't been 21 for some time, according to this. I, I, I think the store you're looking for is Macy's down the hall. I'm not, you know, we, we try to hold on to our youth. We cling to it. I mean, it's interesting. Americans spend $62 billion a year on cosmetics. $62 billion. The number of cosmetic surgery procedures in the U.S. has gone up 115% since 2000. So, so we try to cling to our youth. We push off commitments and decisions that typically had marked responsible adulthood and we push those off to the mid to late 30s so that we can spend more of our money on hobbies and, and technology and fun or fashion or whatever. We fight to preserve some semblance of the satisfying life that we now enjoy, resisting to the decay, pretending it's not there, trying to make today last forever. If we could just make today last forever. But you can't do it. You just can't do it. It doesn't work. Our bodies get old and slow down. Our minds slow down. We get sick. We get injured. Eventually, we all die. And it's not just our bodies and our minds that are given to decay. This entire world is falling apart around us. I mean, our relationships break down. Economies fall Cultures deteriorate. All these beautiful flowers behind me, they will be in the garbage next week. You can't escape the decay. But the problem is not our longing to escape it. The problem is not our desire to try and preserve whatever satisfaction we can find. This longing to hang on to our life and our youth and enjoy it as much as possible. That's not the problem. In fact, That's part of our DNA as creatures made in the image of God. God has wired those longings and desires into us. This desire for eternal satisfaction. The problem is our tendency to look for it in things that are just as prone to decay as we are. That's the problem. And it's into this decaying world that Easter meets us with a message of hope, of resurrection hope. And 
I want us to hear that message of hope this morning as we look together at Psalm 16, which shows us that God alone is able to preserve and satisfy our lives and that He will ultimately do that through our resurrection in Christ. And so if you don't still have your Bibles open, I encourage you to do that, to turn again to Psalm 16. The the verses will be on the slides above me as well. Uh, But Psalm 16 is a prayer from King David to God. David is one of the most famous kings in ancient Israelite history. Um, And this is an honest expression of both David's desires and his confidence in the Lord. And I want you to notice first the similarity between what David wants and what we want out of life, between his desires and our desires. Specifically, notice the language of satisfaction throughout the psalm. We want to enjoy life and delight in it and find pleasure, and that's what David talks about here, satisfaction and pleasure. Verse 2, he says, I have no good apart from you. David wants what is good. That's what he wants. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance, this picture of land and property and abundance and quality and enjoyable. Verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. He's happy. David's happy. And verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's not just happy. He is overflowing with joy and he is set on pleasures that last forever. That sounds like a good thing. So David wants what all of us want. Satisfaction, pleasure, joy in life. And more than that, he wants that pleasure and that satisfaction to last forever. He wants it to last forever, to be preserved just like we do. Look again at the first two verses of the psalm, his prayer here. He says, preserve me, O God. Keep me safe, protected, secure. Preserve me, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So his basic request that he's praying to God for is that God would preserve and satisfy him this good that he has in life, that it would last forever. Uh, Again, look at the last line in verse 11. Something similar. At your hand are pleasures forevermore. So eternal pleasures, pleasures that are going to last. So we are not crazy to want to hold on to life and enjoy it. That's not a weird, selfish thing. That's the way we were wired, to want to hold on to our life and our youth against this decaying process, to find some meaningful satisfaction amid the decay. That's not weird. That's normal. That's what David wants. That's how our hearts are wired to want. But the question becomes, what kind of pleasure is actually capable of withstanding the decay of this world? What is the object of David's pleasure? To what is he looking for joy and satisfaction and good? Well, he answers it himself in verse 2. 
I say to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of Israel, you are my Lord, my king. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from God, I have no good thing. The object of David's lasting joy is God himself. It's not what God can give him. It's not the crown. You put me on this throne, and if I could just hold on to the crown, I'll be happy. It's not his family. It's not success. It's not riches. It is God himself. That's his plea, that God himself gives him that lasting joy. And in verses 3 through 6, he goes on to describe why God alone is able to do that, why everything else will ultimately disappoint. So in verses 3 to 4, he addresses the people of God, the saints in the land, as his fellow Israelites, to warn them that no other God can provide the lasting life and joy that they're looking for. You can look for it all over the place, but I want you to know what I've discovered. You're not going to find it. Rather, verse 4, the sorrows of those who run to another God shall multiply multiply. The the point is very simple. If you're going to look to something other than God to find lasting joy, what you're going to find instead are multiplying sorrows. Multiplying sorrows, increasing sadness and despair. Why? Because you're looking, you're, you're asking a created thing to act like a creator. You're asking a decaying thing to act like a savior. That's just not going to work. In the ancient world, uh, these false gods that David's talking about took very concrete forms. You know, statues made of wood or, or stone or cast metal. And in many parts of the world today, they still take that shape. Literal idols. In the West, we also have idols. We just don't make them into to, to, uh, shaped images anymore, but we have plenty of things we look to and treat as God. We look to as ultimate for hope or deliverance or escape or lasting joy. Created things, treating them like a creator. Things like money or education or career or achievement or relationships or material possessions. You know, if I can just have the car or if I could just have the house, or, or, or the summer house, or then I'll have all that I need for a long and lasting and satisfying life. If I can just have an intact family, if I can get my kids to obey, if, if I can get them to be sports stars, or into the right colleges, then I'll have this lasting satisfaction in life. Beauty, success, entertainment, the, the list is endless. But again, with all of these things, the reality is there's no stopping the decay. It just doesn't slow down. The things of this world make bad gods because they're created. They're not the creator. And and as part of creation, they're all subject to the same decay that we face. A decay and and a corruption that, that stretches clear back to the beginning of time. You know... We, we sometimes don't realize it, but the world hasn't always worked this way. It hasn't always been as corrupt and, and, and prone to fall apart. When God created this world, 
the first humans, Adam and Eve, there was a, a beautiful relationship of trust and joy and a, in a whole and a wholesome world. But it was human rebellion that kind of set things awry. Adam and Eve were not content with God being king over his creation. They thought, frankly, they would do a better job running the world than him. That's what Satan tempted them to think, and they bought into that lie. And so they decided to rebel against God, to to take this decision-making process of good and evil into their own hands. They rebelled, what the Bible calls sin, and as a result of that rebellion, the world was given over to decay. Relationships were broken. Adam and Eve became at strife. We've all known that relational strife ever since then. Bodies were broken. The ground creation itself was broken. It's hard to live life in a fallen world. But most tragically, humanity's relationship with God was broken separated from God by sin. And we live with the results of that fall every single day. And there's not a blessed thing that any created God can do to change it, to rescue us, to save us. And so the psalmist, he refuses to pay homage to these false gods. He's not going to pour out their their drink offerings or make their sacrifices. He refuses even to mention them. He's not going to take their name on his lips. And he encourages us to do likewise, not to trust in created things and the things of this world that decay and disappoint, but to put our trust in God himself. Because only God can satisfy and preserve our lives. And look at the imagery that he uses to describe this. In verses 5 through 6, the Psalms are poetry. So they use a lot of imagery to get their point across. So verses 5 and 6, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So this is language of inheritance. That's what he's talking about. He's using imagery of inheritance, portion, cup, lot, boundary lines. Now, we talk about inheritance today, and we're typically thinking about, you know, a family heirloom, maybe, or a house or some money that someone, when they die, they might leave to you. Well, ancient Israel had an inheritance. Each tribe had a portion of land in ancient Canaan that was given to them by God. But the psalmist is not talking about finding satisfaction in that plot of land. Rather, he's using that imagery of inheritance to describe the kind of satisfaction God himself gives us. He is our portion. He is our cup. When you open the envelope to find out what you inherited, it's his name that's written there. That's the prize. That's the treasure. He is the object of our lasting joy, and He is enough. There's there's no greater treasure we can find in this life. There's no deeper security, no more lasting joy than to know and be known by our Creator and Savior. That's what we were made for. And if we have Him, 
And if our satisfaction is not in what he gives us or not what happens to me today, but in God himself, we have one who's able to guide us through the decay that we live with as this world, as, our, as we fall apart. Whatever darkness we face in this world, David praises God in verses 7 and 8 that, that God gives him counsel, that God is present with him, that he gives him confidence that this decaying world will not shake him. He will not be destroyed by it. And so he rejoices in verses 9 through 11, which in reality are some of the most audacious verses in the entire Bible when you think about what he's actually saying here. Look at the confidence of his joy in the Lord. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Okay, I can get that. My flesh also dwells secure. My body. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the realm of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. Think about what he's saying here. He's not just confident that God's going to guide him through this decaying world until it's over. He's confident that through God, he's going to be victorious over this decaying world. That it's not going to touch him. I mean, the very decay we've been lamenting, the very decay I've been trying to convince you, we all experience David is confident that he's not going to be affected by it. His flesh dwells secure. It's safe. God's not going to abandon him to the grave. He won't let his flesh see decay or corruption, his skin and bone and sinew and tissue. Death will not ultimately overtake him. The grave will not win. Rather, verse 11 He will find true and lasting life in God's path, joy in God's presence, and pleasures that last forever. God will preserve and satisfy his life, the whole thing, body and all. And he rejoices in that, that that in God he is free from the disappointment of idols and protected from the despair of decay. That's a beautiful picture, right? That's a wonderful picture. Is David crazy? Is he crazy for thinking this boldly about something we all know there's no escape from? I mean, it's one thing to find comfort from God in the presence of decay, but to claim victory over the grave, to rejoice that he's not going to face it, that sounds crazy. And it's an indisputable fact that David's body lies in a grave near Jerusalem somewhere, probably dust by now. So, so what exactly is this psalm suggesting then? He praised God that he wasn't going to face decay, and then he did. It, it, I mean, is this simply wishful thinking? Is this just kind of the, the mythology of an ancient world that is kind of just this pitiful coping mechanism? Is it an an exaggeration meant to illustrate the the quality of whatever life you do get? As long as you follow God, it's going to be good until it's over. Is it meant to be spiritualized away 
as though this promise that our bodies won't decay is true of our souls in heaven, but not really true of our bodies on earth. Is that what we're supposed to do with it? Because that seems to fall pretty far short of what this psalm describes, and it falls pretty far far short of the problems and the pain that we actually live with in life. If we limit the scope of these promises and our desire for eternal satisfaction to this world, to this life, which invariably leads to the grave, we will end our days in disappointment and death and decay will get the last say. If, if that's all we can see in these promises. But what if, what if this psalm and these promises were never meant to be limited to this life or to David's life, but always had something bigger and more substantial in mind? Fast forward about a thousand years from King David all the way up to the book of Acts in the New Testament, where the Apostle Peter gives his very first sermon in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So at this point of the story, Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the grave. He's appeared to his apostles for 40 days. He ascends to heaven and says, uh, I want you to go tell people about me, but not yet wait in the city until the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit arrives and David, excuse me, uh, Peter starts preaching. He starts preaching and listen to what Peter says. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know... This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So that's what just happened on Good Friday, right? Jesus Christ, God's eternal son, who lived a perfect, righteous life in our place, was subjected to a corrupt trial. To, uh, he was falsely sentenced to death. He was rejected by his own people, publicly humiliated, and then crucified. He was hung to a Roman cross as a, as a common criminal. Not because he deserved it. Not because he'd done anything to warrant that. But because he offered his righteous life in place of our unrighteous life. He gave his life to pay the penalty of our sin, to, to take the punishment everyone deserves for their rebellion against God. If you remember how death is a result of sin, going all the way back to Adam and Eve's rebellion. So Christ, who was sinless, was alone qualified to give his life as a substitute for ours, to take that punishment of death. So he was crucified, he was buried, he was placed in the grave and we know what happens in the grave. You don't get better. You fall apart. So that's what happened on Good Friday. But then, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
I mean, if you think about it, if death is the punishment for sin, but Christ never sinned, he's not actually guilty, death has no jurisdiction over him. It has no authority to hold him in the grave because he's not actually guilty. It's not possible for death to hold him down. And Peter knows this is true because he saw and spoke and touched the risen Christ. And now he's proclaiming, proclaiming to everyone that it's true. And the way that he helps them make sense that it's true is by preaching a sermon on Psalm 16. The psalm we've been looking at this morning. That's what he quotes in order to help people make sense of the resurrection of Christ. Acts 2.25 For David says concerning Jesus, and then he quotes Psalm 16, 8-11. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter quotes Psalm 16. And then he explains it like this. Verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn on oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So the promises, these crazy, incredible promises that God makes to David in this psalm, that, that, that he alone is able to satisfy and preserve life, and, and that he'll do that by not letting his people see decay. Those promises we read earlier, God fulfills them by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Not by keeping Jesus from the grave. Not by, you know, some magical uh, fountain of youth or something like that where you can just prolong adolescence forever. Not by helping him avoid the grave, but by carrying him through the grave and then raising him victoriously over it. And because Christ is raised from the dead... All who belong to Christ have that same hope of resurrection, of victory over the decay. It's interesting. So often when we talk about the resurrection, uh, we almost always think of it only in terms of Jesus being raised from the dead. That's this historical thing God did in the past. What we don't often realize is, is that for ancient Israel and for the early church, resurrection was something that all God's people were looking forward to. It was the hope for everyone. Uh, God promised it in, in Daniel 12. Jesus himself says in John 5, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear God's voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection 
of judgment. So the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, it was a hope for everyone at the end of time. It's what God would do for everyone. And so when Jesus all of a sudden not only dies, but then raises from the dead, what God promised to do in the end for all people, he takes and he breaks into the present with it through Jesus Christ. He's already begun to accomplish this resurrection in advance through his son. So that through faith in Jesus, our hearts are already raised from the dead. Spiritually, we are, as as Peter puts it, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Resurrection life, eternal life is already at work in the Christian. We don't have to wait to the end of days. Life has met us in the present. Our souls are raised from spiritual death to enjoy life and relationship with God here on earth and afterwards in his presence in heaven. Which means we don't have to fear death, as Lena shared earlier. We have Jesus and he is life. But more than that, when Christ returns, the resurrection power that already has raised the souls of those who belong to him, who trust in him, will raise our bodies as well to make them new just like Christ's. Do you realize that when Jesus stepped out of that tomb, that was the foretaste of what we all look forward to in Christ? Death and decay do not win. Life wins through Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There will come a day when you will wake up and not be sore. When you will not get tired or sick. When cancer will no longer be a concern. There will come a day when death will be no more. And that's because Jesus is risen. That is a powerful hope with us right now. And that is a future hope that changes everything. And so because of Easter, we have hope in a decaying world. Because of Easter, death and decay do not win. That doesn't mean that they do no harm. That doesn't mean that they're not real or they don't truly hurt or cause deep loss. But it does mean that they will not win. They will not win. Not for those in Christ. God will keep His promise in Psalm 16. He will not abandon our souls to the grave or let His holy ones see decay. He's already done it for Jesus. And through Jesus, He will do it for us. God alone is able to preserve and to satisfy our lives. And He He does that ultimately through our resurrection with Christ. And so what do we do with a promise like that? How do we respond to what we see here in Psalm 16 and Acts 2? Well, look at Peter's, look at the response to Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Acts 2, verse 36. Peter concludes 
his sermon. He says, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's proclaiming the truth of who Christ is. Now look at the response. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far, far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, if you want to find forgiveness for your sins and hope amid this decay, hope for a satisfaction and a pleasure that lasts forever, that outlasts the grave, put your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. Talk to a friend who's a Christian or talk to me or one of the pastors if this is new to you. Join me next week for Life Explored. Shameless plug, 9.30, out in the library next week. However it looks, whatever it takes, find your way to Jesus. And if you've found your way to Jesus, trust in Jesus. Keep living in that hope. Keep living in that hope. There is no greater treasure, no hope more secure. He is the path of life, the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may we have faith to trust this crazy psalm that promises more than we can imagine, that promises what we actually need, that deals with our greatest fear and answers our deepest problem. May we have faith to trust these promises by looking back to Jesus and seeing how you've already been faithful to keep your word. Christ is risen. There is life in him. May we believe that today and may we hold fast to that every day as we navigate this decaying world and as we look with hope and joy to the resurrection to come thank you that in christ death does not win may we put our trust in him alone we ask it in jesus name amen